Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Joel Clark, and tonight we're talking about Ravenloft. Uh, Joel has not read Ravenloft material before. He hasn't played Ravenloft. I used to run Ravenloft almost exclusively during the 90s, right from when uh, the Black Box set came out and Feast of Goblins came out, and I, you know, I, I think if I recall, I was brought into the setting by way of the Night of the Black Rose book, and then I immediately went out, I bought the Black Box set, I bought Feast of Goblins, I bought everything else as it came out, uh, Guide to Vampires, that sort of thing. And uh, and I recently went back on to drive through and noticed they had uh, the Black Box set, which I have on my shelf, but I don't know, there was something about reading it in PDF. I, I wanted to see how the PDF looked, and I thought that would be an opportunity to reread it, and like reread it deeply, not just kind of skim through it or whatever. And also, there's been a lot of talk of Ravenloft because they're making new Ravenloft material, and I've been actively involved in a lot of Ravenloft debates. And one thing that's caused me to do <laughs> is go back and look at the old material, because sometimes I'll make an assertion, and I'll be like, wait, was that right? And I'll have to actually go and check to see if my memory is correct. And I decided I want to... Um, I'm kind of a staunch defender of the black box. There's a, For those who don't know... The two big ones are the Black Box set and the Domains of Dread book. And those are kind of the two camps, I think, in Ravenloft. There are other people. Some people like the Red Box set. Some people like the the really crappy uh, uh, White Wolf material that was put out in the 2000s under, I think it was Sword and Sorcery. But they put out a 3E version of Ravenloft, which I think is total garbage. Um, but a lot of people do like that. And, and there's... Uh, and there's also obviously stuff that's been put out under Watsy. So like the, uh, the, the, I think it was Expedition to Castle Ravenloft in 2007. I know that the, the 2007 book or whatever that one came out might've been 2005 or 2006. That was the moment when I realized I have no interest in Wizards of the Coast version of Ravenloft. And, and that kind of was one of the reasons why I went back and started running it using 2E and, I, I I still think that's the best way to do the game. And so what I wanted to get Joel to do is I wanted him to see what the the black box set was all about. It's the technical name of it is um the Realm of Terror box set, but everybody calls it the black box set. And uh and so this was Joel's first time and what we're going to be doing is it's a little bit like the Return of Condor Heroes episodes I did with Kenny. We're going to be taking it in chunks of chapters. So today was chapters 1 through 3. And let me pull up my PDF because I need to, in my old age, uh, <laughs> you know, actually look at the table of contents to remember what I just read, you know, two days ago. Um, but we're doing the introduction, uh, the overview of the Demiplay of Dread. Doesn't get into the domains and stuff, but it just kind of explains what the concept is. And we're doing the reshaping of the characters, chapter three, which is where they talk about some of the differences that the individual classes have, but also the powers checks, which I think is probably where Joel, you'll probably, I'm guessing that's where it starts to actually click for you as a setting is when you get to that reshaping the oh, characters. Oh, quite a bit, yeah. Actually, before that, too, they do a couple of things that helped, helped it click in my head. So, uh, so we're going to go over them, though. So, so, so why don't you tell me what, what was how, what was your uh, experience with this? As far as like reading it this time, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, so I've never read this before. Back uh, in the 
late 90s, early 2000s is when I started my gaming career. So at that point, Ravenloft was kind of like a name. Yeah. Um, uh, and I didn't really ever play Ravenloft. I never read any of the books. Uh, I knew about it like apocryphally, but I, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't my thing. Uh, back when I started gaming, it was, uh, my first games were actually in D20 Modern, Dungeons and Dragons, and Vampire the Masquerade, which at that point, was, I think it was like its second edition. Um, and so like, that was kind of my intro to gaming. Mm. And so the, the, the actual chronology of gaming history prior to that point, I was a little fuzzy on it. I knew a lot about the seventies stuff because like I went back and I researched like, uh, like the really old, like David Arneson, like, uh, what was it? Castle Blackmore and, and all the stuff that turned into D and D. Cause I know a lot about that, but I'm pretty cloudy on the early nineties, which is weird. Cause like that was, but it was a time when I would really like vampires. As a little kid, I thought vampires were cool and spooky. So, but I, I, Actually, we researched a little bit prior to this podcast, and it turns out this is a 1990 product, and it came out, I want to say, one year before Vampire the Masquerade did. And when I was reading this, since I'm conversant with Vampire the Masquerade, I was really surprised by how many ideas they clearly ripped off from Ravenloft. Like, there's a lot of stuff, like, structurally, that I don't know how often this stuff showed up in, in role-playing games in general, but are huge mechanical things that are really iconic in Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, the power check slipped out to me, but there, there's a few things about it that kind of left out okay. to me, too. And, and I don't know uh, Vampire that well. I, I've played it. I, you know, I, I'm familiar with it to a degree, but I don't know it the way that you would know it to be able to comment. And I don't also know in terms of what the connective tissue is there. All I know is... There was rivalry in the 90s, and I remember feeling as a Ravenloft GM always kind of a little bit bitter towards Vampire because it was more popular. It was it was it was sort of the the you know it, it was it was the um, it was a little bit more hip and a little bit more fresh than than D and D at that time. So I remember having a little bit of resentment because I really liked Ravenloft, but. Um, <laughs> And also there was a point in Ravenloft when they started doing things that it felt like they were trying to emulate Vampire, and I felt like that was the wrong way for Ravenloft to go. Yeah, um, this is a very distinct uh, vibe to it. If if Vampire was based on Anne Rice novels, and this was based on Hammer Horror movies, yeah, like that's, that's the comparison I would make. Now, what would you say? So, so chapter one is from Gothic roots. That's the introduction to the you know the the, the sort of the mood and setting. Uh, how did that chapter grab you? What did you think about it? Interestingly, uh, interestingly, the last class I took in college was about romantic era literature. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading this chapter, I was like, wow, they really get the broad strokes of the romantic era. And like, like they, they explicitly call out the way the landscape is important and like the general like brooding atmosphere and all that. So there's a lot of that. Uh, like, yeah, sensuality and seduction, the powers of nature, like all this stuff when they're talking about tonally what uh, Ravenloft should feel like, they're like they're they're clearly drawing on a pool of knowledge from the classics there because the Romantic era of literature was very much that uh, it it res it had this like deep profound respect and and like uh, this sensual majesty from nature. There there was a lot of like burgeoning sensuality mm. in the writing, like some of the best uh, some of the greatest. Uh, like sensual poems come out of that era, uh, like Lord Byron wrote back then, and and like yeah, the the very first note that it struck was like really pitch perfect for gothic horror. Like it really got the gothic part 
Right. And it founded it in, in a literary tradition, uh, really expertly and with a really good economy of language. So even just starting reading this, I was immediately like, wow, this is actually like good, good, not just yeah. like good for a game, but like kind of good just as a general like study and setting the mood for a game like yeah. this. Yeah, this really sets the mood. That's the thing I like about it. And I didn't know anything about gothic horror literature at that time. Like I was in ninth or 10th grade when I got into this, like, I forget which grade I was in, in, in 1990, 91, but whatever grade I was in, you know, that's what they, uh, but prior to that, you know, we had to read Edgar Allan Poe and stuff like that, but I didn't have any awareness of the genres and all that. And also I had like what I knew about Frankenstein from the movies, but this, this was the first time that, 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 uh, quote that it highlights on page five, where it's talking, it, it's sort of talking about the nature of, um, of of uh, of of villains in the in, in the setting and oh and, the, the the I ought to be thy Adam quote yeah yeah where it says uh, you know these superhuman villains are the source of melancholia and or brooding evil which pervades most gothic horror and then they you know they, they talk about how the you know the monster's existence is really satisfying and you know there's there is like this tragic quality to it and then they give the quote where where um, where the monster is saying, I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Everywhere I see bliss from which I am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy, and I shall again be virtuous. Now, one thing that grabbed me at that age, because I, I had only really the image in my head of, like, the Boris Karloff Frankenstein. Yeah, you know the I mean? big lumbering, yeah. like, zombie-like monster. Yeah, and I was like, wow, that's, like, an eloquent monster. I didn't realize that. And then I also liked that the next paragraph there's kind of commentary on that where they're like well actually yeah, he's already murdered a kid so just so you know you know <laughs> but yeah, he had he's and he's not only did he murder a kid he's talking to the older brother of the kid he murdered yes with his yeah. bare hands so yeah. like yeah that that doesn't ring super true when you read it in the novel either but but it's still it's it's a much more eloquent plea for empathy than, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's, it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, like there's, there's a human, a humanish soul and intellect inside the monster. That's fascinating. And yeah. It's fascinating in the novel. And the authors of this book understand that it's fascinating and it's not really yeah. explored in D and D. Yeah. And that was something where I was like, wow. And so I immediately went out and read Frankenstein. That was one of the first things I do did after reading this. And, 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 and this, this book became almost like my Bible for finding you know horror books and things like that because i was a kid who read i i so just to put this into some kind of context i was really into horror movies as a kid my uncle loved classic horror so i watched a lot of classic horror films i liked horror at that age and in high school i was watching horror with my friends all the time i was not the greatest reader i had dyslexia so i had never really finished a book until about ninth or tenth grade and the first book I ever finished was Night of the Black Rose. That was actually the first book I ever read, like from cover to cover and fully understood it, um, you know, which was just, I think, a product of me kind of having the tools to deal with the dyslexia and be able to read. And so uh, so then going into this, this helped open up a world of reading to me that was like, you know, like where that's so everything that I kind of know about horror sort of st in terms of the literary stuff, not in terms of the movies, but in terms of the literature kind of started here for me. And I think that this is like, a, I don't know this. Uh, so 
you know, the, oh, the, reason... the, the literature, the little appendix E they give you on page seven is brilliant reading. Uh, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Bram Stoker's Dracula, H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau, which I only read four or five years ago, and it disturbed me then yeah. as an adult. And, um, and I will say some people critique this list because I know that a lot of these are not technically gothic horror. Well, then, do you know what I mean? But like, all romantic era yeah. horror, but they're all... I mean, it's really even the ones that aren't are clearly inspired by it. Like they've got Poe and Lovecraft in here. Yep. You know, like those those are those both of those authors aspired to be romantic era poets in their own way. Yeah, I, I ended up reading everything on this list except for The Vampire by John Polidori. And I don't know why I didn't. I might have just had trouble getting it at that time because I don't remember ever seeing it at the bookstore, which is what I, you know. But Sheridan mm-hmm. Lafanu, I, I got I got, you know, I got like a, an anthology of his stuff that included Carmilla. And I knew, I knew that story because of the vampire lovers. So that was already familiar to me. Um, the, the, what was it? The, uh, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, you know, Shirley Jackson, Island of Dr. Moreau. That, that, that was something that I, I read almost immediately after this as well. Strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, like, you know, all, all of these books, but then it kind of sent you on like a whole thing where you just, you know, were really exploring works from this period. Um, but I think this chapter does a really good job of, like you said, setting the mood and it's almost like you wouldn't be able to do this today. I was reading this chapter. I think I read it two days ago again. And the first thought I had was, wow, they are taking a long time or he, cause I think it's, it's two writers basically. And I don't know how much of it was written, um, by by one or the other but th- this was written yeah, by Bruce Nesmith and Andrea Hayday. Yeah, Andrea Hayday. Andrea Hayday and Bruce Nesmith. And uh this is clearly a book that's got like vision to it. Do you know what I mean? Like they yeah. got like there's like a clear okay, this is what we want to do and we're going to do it, which is one of the reasons why I like this one better than the later Ravenloft stuff that came out, you know, y- you know years after. But but like I don't know, I don't think you could have an intro like this because I feel like people would too like you. They don't even get to the point. Do you know what I mean? Before they're just setting the mood. You you would not be able to set the mood for four or five pages. Now you have to. You oh have yeah, to... this is indulgent. I think is the term I would use for it. Because uh, yeah, it it spans from page five and it's every, like it's nothing but text. Uh, it's page five, six, and seven are all just about here's the mood of this game and like it's not there's not even like there's no like thesis really it's just this big sprawling rich decadent introduction and yeah i don't know if this would fly nowadays there's just too much of it and and you can sort of see how that would happen because then when you go and you read books like frankenstein and you read the island of dr moreau and you read sheridan lafano they're from periods when the writing was a lot more flowery Especially Frankenstein, oh, yeah. right? Like Frank, you know, and well, so Frankenstein's surprisingly brief. But Dracula, a Bram Stoker's Dracula, holy hell! No, there are a lot of words in that. No, but what I mean, I mean, Frankenstein's a shorter book. But what I mean is the language is flowery, like the, the oh, like yeah. long paragraphs. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that kind of thing. Like, you know, just the the total opposite of how we write today, right? Like now we write in very concise, punchy style sentences um and everything is an yeah, active voice right everything is an active yeah because uh, a lot of these were written by missive and the style of writing they were drawing on was older styles of writing you know yeah. and and the modern style is, is much more about being brief and having like more dynamic verbs so like yeah. it's a very different style of writing nowadays yeah. 
But just because we have a modern style and just because that's effective at conveying certain things doesn't mean you can't write in other ways yeah. if you're doing something different. And I think that what I find admirable about these pages is that they have the stones to do something different. Like they're explicitly rejecting a more modern style of writing for yes. this more florid and like, again, a sort of sensual type of writing that kind of draws you in. And there's also a starkness to it. And I, I think that the design of the pages helps out with it's that. It's beautiful. It's very beautiful. Marbled borders. Uh, Vampire rips that off too, by the way, that marbling. But again, this book makes sure to do that on every single yeah. page. And all of the art is thickly lined. And the Stephen Fabian cool. art, the black and white Stephen Fabian oh, art. Also, Stephen Fabian's really good. To get back to what you were saying there too, like that's what they're saying about horror as well. This is this is a rejection of modern horror, this book. And and again, I was a horror fan. I liked watching stuff like uh, the movie that we were just talking about, Night of the Demons, oh, and yeah. things like that. You know, the, I, I was I was all in on 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 sort of the, the, the campy 80s and early 90s horror that we were getting at the time. But but this but this book is sort of like a challenge and says like no like the older stuff is actually good and you need to go back and you need to study the older stuff and that's what we want you to do here you're 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 going to make a, a campaign that is built around older principles of horror and more subtlety and all these things which is something that I could also understand because I liked classic horror movies and and I always like to say don't throw the baby out with the bathwater so I think that you know this is just it's it's a it's I, I love that it has this really stark point of view about about horror and about the old ways and about not just getting rid of stuff that came before because it's old it had you know and and again that fits in with the theme of gothic because gothic has like the remnants of earlier periods in it right it's it's filled with ruins and old castles well, yeah, and, and you could say that both the writing style and the subject matter rely on the kind of ruins of this this earlier era to add weight and atmosphere yeah so the yeah, for establishing the tone of this game and how you're supposed to approach this material, I really think this is an amazing introduction. And again, don't know how well it would fly nowadays. E even I was reluctant to write an introduction for my game, like yeah. to give you an idea. And I love this. It, it, it's really uh, well written. I think they did a really is. good job. I, I mean, I think it's some of the some of the best writing that I remember from this period of gaming, just in terms of what I like. You know, I'm sure a lot of people will. You know, nah, that's no good. But I, I think this is really good stuff. Um, I, I may, I may pick up the the new uh, Curse of Strahd stuff just so I can compare the introduction to see if it has the same I, kind of richness to it. I have the um, whereas I have the one they put out not too long ago. But we can, I, I, I don't want to, I, I, I'm definitely an old Ravenloft fan, and and I don't want to um, uh, sort of contrast them just because I've read the new. I've read the Curse of Straw, but I haven't, um, I haven't run it. Do you know what I mean? So I haven't played it. Oh, so I yeah. think that would be that's unfair. A, that's an important point to make. Yeah. About like reviewing a role playing game, reviewing role playing game material, you have to run it. Yeah. You can't just you can't just read it and think about it. It has to hit the table because you don't know yeah. how it plays until it plays. But I will also say I think they're trying to do something very different, and I don't know that they can be compared in the same way. Whereas I think you can compare the three E Ravenloft to this one and the late two E Ravenloft to this one, and it's more it it just works better. But I think comparing it to the the the, the most recent iteration is kind of hard because it's so much distance. Um, so what did you think of the Demi Plane of Dread chapter chapter two? 
Okay, so the Dimming Light of Dread starts off by grounding you in, what is it, Barovia is the name of this place? Yes, because the, that's the, the setting of... So just to yeah. give the backstory, there was the Ravenloft module before this came out, which was set in Barovia with Strahd as the main villain. And then there was another module, and then there was, and then they decided to do a full setting in like 1990. And so this is, and and what this is is an attempt to extrapolate on the stuff that was present in the original Ravenloft module. Yeah, that's actually what struck me the most about this chapter. Because first of all, it's neat. There's a lot of really nifty ideas. I especially like the mist that kind of redefines reality mm. along the the Ravenloft axiom. That's nifty. Uh, but what I think is most fascinating about this is that there's there's all this material that was floating out there in its own little sea of mist you know that you like had these modules and you had these different like encounter tables and things like that that didn't have a central connecting element or, or didn't or it clearly needed some actual in universe justification for why it was presented that way and what's fascinating to me and i don't think that we would do this anymore I, i'm not sure if any game designer cares enough about the integrity of their world to make it make internal sense in the same way. This whole chapter is about justifying those storytelling techniques and those game running techniques in terms of how the universe and reality of Ravenloft works. Like it's really yeah. clear that it, it's not a plane, it's a demi plane. It's yeah. clear that there are specific gates that open under specific circumstances and only operate under certain real ways. And the ways in which it connects to the, the, the er the inner game of D and D and the logic of how D and D works is flawless. Like it makes sure that all the connections are smoothed out, and you as a GM kind of have this this permission to to have a an adventure in Ravenloft without committing to the setting. Yeah. And it makes sure that you are able to trap characters there if you like it enough, or and give them ways that then maybe they can escape and ways to rearrange the material if you like it the most. And it doesn't really go any further in establishing like a solid canon than saying, okay, well, the map we're showing you now is generally pretty solid for the most part. It doesn't really change that much, but it can. And I I love that they, they have enough there that if you just wanted to run it from this book, you could. Yeah. But there's also enough there, like there's plenty of elbow room for the creative GM to interject their own stuff. Yes, uh, yes. And it's, again, it's all painstakingly and delectably justified in the logic of how D&D works. And I'm not just talking about the logic, like the rules language of the logic. I'm talking about like the actual way the characters exist in their reality. Ravenloft works this way for them. It was incredible. And uh, what what did you think? So uh, let's take it section by section here a little bit. I mean, obviously, this was this your first introduction to Strahd or did you know about Strahd before this? Um, I knew a little bit about Strahd. I knew he was like the main vampire and he had some kind of tragic backstory and he okay. had a cool castle and that's okay. all I knew about it. Okay. Did this uh, clarify anything? Was this like, Oh yeah, this, this gives you his history and it's brief and it's rich and it's, it's Dracula without being Dracula. And it's actually, what's interesting about it to me is that this predates, uh, the, the Bram Stoker's Dracula yeah. movie. Yeah. And this is a lot closer to that movie than yes. the actual text of Dracula is to that movie. Yeah. To the point where it feels like this inspired that movie. That that's I I think I even mentioned that during the when we reviewed that movie that I was kind of wondering about that. And I think yeah, I I think it, it's again, I maybe there was a novel that was written that that was based on before this came out and they were both influenced by that. I don't know, but I feel like 
that you know because there were definitely variations on dracula that got into other themes like that but like this this does seem very close to um to to the brand the 92 bram stoker dracula for sure um at the very least i feel like there was shared cultural stuff in the air maybe you know um but uh but what did you think of the um the the timeline of events because they give you you know an overview of the growth of the demiplane and it's actually fairly short the calendar starts in 351 which is when barovia appears in ravenloft and it ends in 735 when the campaign starts which is like that's not that long right like most campaign settings have a much longer more extensive history and i was curious how you what you thought about that it is brief, but it's long enough to feel like like that kind of pseudo ancient history, mm-hmm. you know, like that's it has that feel, number one, because there's there's a chronology to when these different lords showed up. And also it doesn't give it doesn't overwhelm you with information. Yeah. Like here's one six ninety one Tepest appears. That's the entire entry. Yeah. That's it. That's the whole entry. That's what most of them invites are. You. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of them are that. It invites you to like flip back to that back part of the book and look up who the hell Tepris is. There's like, also oh, okay, there's this also guy. this list also has a sense of humor because if you look at seven hundred, seven oh four, seven eleven, uh, and seven twenty two, you know those are all entries where Drakov invades Darkon is and is repelled, which is like a recurring thing that keeps happening between Falkovnia <laughs> and Darkon. So there's there's like a sense of humor in the list too, which I like. Um, you know, the same thing with um, in in 528, Powerful Heroes Assault Castle Ravenloft and Perish, right? There's, perish. You know, yeah. I so, cackled at that. Yeah. So, so you know, there, there, there is like a, again, there's like an edge of humor to it. Um, how did you feel about its definition of the, the demiplane and its explanation of the mists? Oh, I, I love the mists. Um, I don't, I, I'm not sure... Where else I've seen something like the mist? Uh, I know that Exalted famously had the the wild, which kind of worked like this, where you'd walk into one part of the edge of the world, and like reality kind of got ill defined. You could pop out at another part mm-hmm. of the world. So like it kind of works like that. But I I don't know. I may, maybe this is what uh, originated that concept. I really like the mists, um, and I like them because they are a game universe justification for the kind of technique you can use to introduce characters to some yeah. new thing, you know, you, you know, you get done with this adventure and then the mist roll over the whole adventure area. And next week I'll think of some other place for you to go. And it'll start off with, you see a shape emerging from the mist as you travel aimlessly through the directionless fog. Yeah. That's great. I love that. I love that because what a perfect way of like just spinning the, the, the compass and making it impossible for them to use like, hex crawl procedures to approach the, the material in this the same way they would approach material in like uh greyhawk or something like that you know it, it's it, t- and I, it and i will oh, say this is not much of a hex crawl setting like it does come with a hex overlay for tra- tracking distance but you'll find when we get to the map and everything this isn't like a hex setting it's a different kind of like it's 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 a world that you can explore for sure but it's uh I feel Ravenloft. That's the wonderful thing about it is it feels like you could do a hex crawl in this if you didn't like if that's what you want in front. But you also don't have to if you're like, ah, screw hex crawling. I hate that crap. I just want to do mysteries. You can because the mist is there. Yeah. And you can also switch back and forth as the mood strikes you like that's wonderful. Well, you know what we should do? I'll, I'll have to see if I can get a hold of Night of the Walking Dead and run that. I think that would be a really cool, uh, 
don't know. That's one. That's one of the adventures that I remember really liking, and I think it would be an interesting one to try to try to try to put people through using the second edition system. Um, what did you think of the concept of the domains themselves? Did that? Oh, I love the domains. Uh, and those those get a little bit of a payoff later on too uh, in the next chapter where your character can become a lord of a domain. Yeah. But I like the idea that a domain kind of accretes around the big bad evil guy that's in the yeah. domain, and they can't really like interact with each other. So you have these like almost genre separated bad guys where you like yes. you have like the Lord High Werewolf, and he's like in his own place, and then over here there's the Castle of Evil Mick you know, squid face and he's his own bad guy. And then over there you've got a vampire and like, they can't, they can't push past their own boundaries. It's a prison for them. Yes. But it's yes. also a playground. That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. I think that uh, works and, really well. I think that works. Well, really and it, well. it does a good job of making a dungeon out of a thing that isn't a dungeon. You know, the, the town of Brovia and the castle of, of Strahd and all that, those aren't dungeons. Maybe Strahd's Castle a little bit. Yeah, Strahd's Castle part... you could do as a dungeon for sure because that's an extensive complex that's mapped out really well. Not in this box set, but in um in the Ravenloft adventure. The yeah, map you that... could, and that's what I usually see. And I actually, I like that map a lot. There's this really cool uh, isometric view map where a guy just drew it out, and it looks yeah. freaking cool. Well, that's but... all, all of Ravenloft maps are pretty much isometric maps. That becomes yeah, the, that becomes that. a hallmark of the uh, of the of the line. In Feast of Goblins, most of the big maps in that are are isometric. Most of the adventures seem to go that direction too. There are some uh, top down maps, but the isometrics are really where Ravenloft shines. I think. Yeah, and it it allows you to really appreciate not because it shows the externals of a lot of these places, and it lets you really look at the architecture and appreciate the impact that would have on a character viewing it. That's interesting. Oh, uh, you're talking so, about the stock cards in the. Uh, yeah, yeah, in the back here. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were probably actual like cards, but they yeah, were, here okay. Yeah, yeah. so in when when you got the original box set, they were stock cards that on the other side had either information about the location or there might be information like like a table or something or something relevant. Yeah, to the it's kind of that that same formatting here. So yeah. when I flip the page and the other side of that page, it's the same yeah. image, just in black and white, and then it's got like a key. Yeah, um, those were cool. I liked the stock cards. I thought they added like a a nifty element to the like a very tactile sort of way of learning about Ravenloft. And also you could pull those out and show them to players so they could say yes, this is what you see a, in the distance. You know what I mean? That, yeah, this is a player appropriate side. And that's one of the great functions of art in an RPG is being able to flip it over and say, You see this. Yes. You yeah. know? That's really that's very impactful and important. And the stock cards um, were really high quality too. That was the other they were they were glossy, thick stock cards. They really kind yeah, of I bet these added, were beautiful in the box set. Yeah, the box set was gorgeous. It, it, I think it won awards for presentation. Um nice. The, uh, so what about the reshaping of the characters chapter? Because that's the that's the third chapter. That's the last one that we read for this. Um, yeah, I that... I like how careful they were with it. You know, that's one of the things I think is most impressive about this. Like they they pick out certain characters and they understand intimately what those characters are about. Like the paladin yeah. is about being a shining good guy, and it's like, okay, you still get to be a shining good guy. That's that's true about you, but also that's dangerous as hell. Yes. And here's yes. why, and here's how. You know? Um I would like to point out that the the core D D classes, the two original ones, the the fighter, which is here called a warrior, and the magic user, which is here called a wizard, um not affected even slightly by Ravenloft. They're just well, like, no, yeah, no. Nah. 
Wizards are heavily affected in a later chapter when they go over oh, okay. all the changes to spells. That's when ra- that's when wizards start experiencing problems. Um, well, I, specifically in this chapter, it's like your familiar isn't affected. Yes, yes, that's I true. know familiars were a bigger deal in second edition than they were in earlier editions. I because I've, I've I was going back through my experience with D anD D, and I actually at one point did read the entire uh, second ed player's handbook. Uh, it's one of the uh, one of the earliest ones I read at the time, and it's really pretty. Like. Uh, Production-wise, compared to the real old stuff, like the original mm-hmm. Monster Manual and stuff like that, it is much, much prettier. They a, really yeah. nailed the presentation. Those were very pretty books, I th- I agree with you. Yeah, and the it's and the wizard kind of makes out, whereas the ranger, it's like, well, your animal companion is going to maybe start serving the Dark Lord instead of you. So yeah. there's like a, you know, but I like how they describe that because it's like the, the animal companion is going to be torn between having two yeah, masters. Like and it, they have their own gothic adventure right yeah. alongside of you. yeah. And that's the thing I like about the way that they, the, whenever they talk about Ravenloft, it's it's not immediately apparent. It didn't become clear to me until I started reading the Raven the the Ron Richten books. But there's this idea of the GM is kind of supposed to riff off of the things that happen. Do you know what I mean? And so it becomes this organic. There's a concept. I'll I'll draw your attention to it next episode. A concept I call it the living adventure concept. They call it something else, but they mention it in the Feast of Goblins module, and I feel like that's that's the spark that gives Ravenloft life. And you can really see it in the examples they give of of like what happens with the animal companion. That it struck me a lot in the animal companion, but the paladin has it too. Like any of the classes that are affected. Like, they're affected in a way that invites kind of, like, that that gothic interpretation of what's happening, you know? It's it's not just that your animal companion isn't there anymore. It's not yeah. that you lose the perk. It's that it kind of, like, twists it so it yeah. has its own little arc it has to deal with. Yeah, which is, um, is going to be – which is almost like a, an adventure in itself because as you're going around doing things – this animal companion might actually be following you guys in a creepy way. And, you know, it, it can become a whole adventure trying to figure out what's going on with the animal companion. And, mm-hmm. and like with the, with the paladin domain Lords can sense their presence. They can pin them down to within a mile. If the yep. paladin has a Holy sword, I think it's like within a hundred yards or something. So yeah, it's really close, which is great um, be- because that's like, no, normally, like the thing is like, well, how do the bad guys know where to find us? Well, if you have a paladin, like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you have a knight of the Lord with a magical sword. What did you think was going to happen? Um, um, what about the non-human races thing? How'd you feel about that? That's one that a lot of people don't like now. A lot of people actually, I do like this because uh, for me, non-human races don't have to go past dwarf and elf. Not really, yeah. you know. And I like that this treats them like, like it. It, it kind of tells you more about Ravenloft than yeah. it does about these races because they aren't really present. Yeah, like you don't see like Tolkien elves here. And if a person from from Ravenloft saw an elf, they wouldn't think, "Oh, a magical creature of the woods here to save me." They'd be like, yeah. "What is this knife-eared monster that is pretending to be human and has magic? I hate yes. it. Kill it yeah. with a pitchfork." And there are some, like, Darkon is a domain that has demi-humans. There are a couple of others. There's a domain called Falkovnia where they imprison demi-humans on site. But um, 
I I prefer the human centric Ravenloft. I think that works best because mm-hmm. number one, the source material is human centric. It's not Lord of the Rings. Do you know what I mean? So like yeah. having to add in demi humans to that is I think a little bit weird. Uh, but also, it, like you said, it, uh, Ravenloft is the kind of place where people are going to be afraid of things that seem unusual, and demi humans are going to seem unusual and possibly supernatural. So it it just fits the setting and. And again, I know, I, you know, again, I know that sensibilities around this sort of thing are different, but I just think it worked for Ravenloft. I don't I, I don't understand the uh, the dislike of that, that. Well, you and me, you and me are products of another generation of fantasy. And like this yeah. generation of fantasy, like being non-human is like kind of a standard, like especially okay. in fifth edition. Everyone's a tiefling now. Like okay. that's like the race everyone is or like a dragonborn or something. But tieflings are hugely popular. OK, Um and I think it's approached a little kind of like Star Trek plays with different species. Like it's kind yeah. of playful with them where like you could be a Vulcan or you yeah. could be a Ferengi or a green woman, whatever race they were, you know, uh, it's the same thing. That's like, that's how D and D is now. Okay. back in the day. D and D was, was Conan. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and you can, you can kind of put Conan in a Gothic horror novel, but once you get to like, um, like Moorcock and, uh, Elric of Melnabane, that dude, he's a little too weird to be in a gothic horror. And yeah. it's kind of more about how the world reacts to him. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I agree with that. Um, what did you think of the powers check, though? That's really the heart oh, of this man. chapter. That's that's the, um, that is well, Ravenloft for me, the powers check. First of all, I love the powers check. Because uh, it doesn't say explicitly, but the examples all kind of follow a pattern and it kind of makes it clear that you as a GM should sort of have a plan for how a character will turn into yes. an NPC, um, which is neat. And I like that some of them are really gross and some of them are like subtle and insidious. And I like that you can kind of choose how a character experiences their descent into darkness. Um, I like that it's, it's based on your judgment of their evil actions and yeah. the efficacy of the evil actions. I like that it's a D100 check because that kind of is a little callback to uh, the KLCM Call of Cthulhu stuff with the sanity checks. Um, there's a lot. And I like that it's con- concrete stages, you know, yeah. and they're they're progressive. You can't go back. Yeah. So once you get stage one, once you hit the enticement, the only way to go is down. Next is the invitation. Next is touch of darkness. Yeah. And I one of the coolest things about this, and something that reminded me the most about Vampire, actually, was that at the higher stages, whenever you start turning into a Dark Lord, you begin to lose control of your character's actions. And you lose control completely. But yeah. the distinguishing thing is how long you lose control. Because at first, it's just an action. If you, if you fuck up your check, and it's a check, it's a saving throw. If you fuck it up... You lose control of your character and your team yeah. controls you for one action. That's scary. Suddenly, the evil universe of Ravenloft is calling the shots with your character. And it's a real yes. taste of not only your inevitable fate, but the sort of feeling of like disempowerment that comes with this sort yeah. of inevitable horror of and, Ravenloft. And the loss of your humanity. Like the yes. that's what's that's what's being lost is that in that self-control. Is that you're becoming well, you're a literally monster. losing your free will. Yeah. You know, and that's what's scary about being a vampire. That's what's scary about being a werewolf. Like, the scary thing is that you don't get to call the shots anymore. It's the yeah. ultimate disempowerment. And 
this the this might be historically one of the first times in gaming it really shows up, especially in this particular way. Because when you when I mentioned Call of Cthulhu earlier, in Call of Cthulhu you go insane, yeah. but you don't lose your humanity. You simply lose your grip on reality. It's different. Yeah, this and isn't I, just losing your grip. This is like becoming a monster. Yeah, and I don't know the history of that particular type of mechanic. Actually, this would be a good argument for why Adam should have stayed on the podcast with us, despite yeah. not having read this, because his knowledge of such things is encyclopedic. But I think that um, I think that this is at least the first time I saw anything like this. I'm sure there were other games that had similar types of things. There was constant. I f- I feel like in the early days of the hobby, there was a lot of reinventing the wheel. Do you know what I mean? Mm, was, yeah. And so I, I, I try not We're to get too caught. still doing that, man. Yeah, <laughs> I, I try not to get too caught up in who did what first or whatever. But I love the powers check. And this in this version, there's six stages. And the basic way it works is when you commit a truly evil act. Like not the the example they give is murdering a jailer to to get out of jail to save yourself. That's not going to cut it. But if you were to torture the jailer for information, that would qualify as is as, as required yeah, you, you kind of have to go past just being a murder hobo and into actually being a villain and yeah. i like that and and what it is is it's the dark powers of ravenloft the mists responding to the character's action and giving them a reward and a punishment and it's sort of like a it 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 it, it, it it's kind of an enticement to keep going down that dark road. But at the same time, there are drawbacks and you're slowly sort of becoming this cursed entity until ultimately you can become a dark Lord. And in later versions, like in the domains of dread book, they, they change the number of stages to like 13 stages, which I think is too many. And and I think in the red box set, I'm pretty sure it was red. I forget when they introduced this, they actually start breaking down individual, like powers checks by, type of action so like torturing a lawful good character torturing an evil character that kind of like oh they, yeah that's yeah, that's too much specificity yeah yeah and, and and they get and they break down all the different crimes and everything i, I think just keeping it vague works best and the general thing yeah. is one percent five percent for a really bad crime and never should it really go over ten percent you know um you know yeah and, they, they keep the percentages in a very small range and it's all just gm fiat you know it's, yeah. it's about the judgment of the gm and i hate using the term fiat with yeah. gm judgment i think judgment is an empowering kind of verbiage and that's the what's what's being appealed well, to here is human judgment but here's it's the not thing just someone's whim you know here's what makes it work in ravenloft and this is what i've whenever i've done this in any game i've made i've always attempted to do it the same way whenever you're talking about gm fiat or just the gm doing something because they think it's going to be a good idea they're doing it as it's in line with the cosmology of the setting. The GM is acting yeah. as the dark powers. Yeah, you're in judge. the role of the evil that is in control of this. Yeah. So it's not just me, Brendan, saying, well, I am going to punish Joel because he did that. It's no, how do I think the dark powers would respond to this? And and again, that gets to the living adventure concept that we're going to talk about next time, where you're playing the dark powers, you're playing Strahd, you're playing all of these things like they're real. And I think that for me, at least, what that does is that that gives me something as that, that can work as a model and a guide to make really good judgments as a GM. And I'm not going to say, like, when I first started playing Ravenloft, obviously, I was young. I was a terrible GM, like most GMs are <laughs> at that age. And my fiats were probably awful. But but as time went on, they got quite much, a lot better because I developed a sense of how Ravenloft dark powers ought to be thinking about these things. 
And so, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I really like that. And I like the simplicity of it presented here. It's really easy to remember. Um, you know, and if you don't remember, yeah, it's easy to reference. Yes. Um, it's easy to write down on a character sheet whenever you get screwed up. Uh, there, there's a lot about this to admire. It's a yeah. beautiful, again, a beautiful economy of language is used here yeah. to, I mean, and some of these entries are so great. Uh, neck grows one foot longer. Wow. That's wonderful. I love that. Well, and what's cool is it's like you said, it's all building up towards some final product in a way. So like, you don't you don't have to do it that way. You could just say, well, this time they do this, this time then your punishment at stage two is this. But ideally what you're actually doing is the punishments are a reflection of what the person is doing wrong. And that's building to something a little bit more specific. Do you know what I mean? So it's I don't know, I, I think that it uh uh that's the most challenging part of it actually, is Well, and that's the thing. This the presentation of everything I've read so far in Ravenloft invites thematic cohesiveness. Like it, that's that's the that is the cement that weds all of these disparate chunks together. Uh, and yeah. and so even without having to be told that there should be a narrative cohesion to this, you sort of intuitively understand it. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, and they, and they do. I, I, did they actually mention that or no, or is that just something? That no, they don't say. They don't breathe a word about that. Okay, okay. Uh, um, I, I think they get more explicit about that as the line goes on. Like, I think the red box probably elaborates on that. And again, the red box is good. I just feel like this one, man, this one is amazing to me. This when I when I got this, and again, I have to emphasize, I had dyslexia. I, I have dyslexia. I guess I had a real hard time reading. It was not easy for me. But I remember sitting down with this and just not being able to stop reading it. Do you know what I mean? Which for me was yeah. like, wow, this, I mean, it, that means it's good. Do you know what I mean? Or at least it means for me, it's good. Um, you know, it wasn't well, like. Could, there is something spellbinding about the, the presentation of this game. Yeah. Like there's something majestic and mysterious and otherworldly about it. And it's not. I, I'm a big connoisseur of reading the old stuff, when it, especially when it comes to D&D. And, like, the style in this is so... You can see yourself getting lost in it. Yeah. It's you know, good. I could see that, especially if I was a kid and I had more time. Like, yeah, this could be a, a few weeks of I, just opening this up and getting lost in the pages. I mean, I literally sat on the couch and just didn't stop reading it. I think I finished it in, like, a day or two. Do you know what I mean? Just like, yeah. it was just like, I, and, and then, and then it was like on to feast of goblins. And then I just kept going back and rereading like that, that like, um, I forget the name of the chapter, but there's a later chapter where they talk about techniques of terror. That might actually be the name. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it is. I, I read that chapter over and over and over again. Like that was just, you know, just. See, when is that one coming up? I, cause I saw oh, that's, I that's like, much oh, later. I want to read this one. That's much later. And, 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 uh, and, and it's good that it's later. Cause you kind of have to get the setting first before you get to that. Mm. Um, that makes sense. but, uh, but it's, I, 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 again, I, it's been a while since I've read it. So we'll see if my memory is, is, you know, as strong as, uh, if it's as good in my memory as it is in, in real life. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel one of the things that I noticed when I was, going back to this as I was talking about people with Ravenloft and like different forums and stuff is I, I just was struck by how, you know, really well crafted this, this is. Um, and, and I, and again, I think everything you use the word economy, of language and various synonyms for that throughout. I think that's really mm -hmm. one of the things that 
is the hallmark of this. And it's interesting that it does that while also being incredibly evocative with its language. So it's like economy of language, but also it's got it's got a depth of vocabulary that is it's sort of it's it's an odd comparison but to me this is like the leonard cohen of rpg books do you know what i mean because it's like it's it not an it's, odd comparison it's an odd comparison but the reason why i'm saying that is because it never it, it never uses too much words it just uses all of the right words to get at what it's trying to say do you know what i'm saying so oh yeah and that's the thing we we were talking about how long and indulgent that very first introduction was and then like when you get to these these little brief chapters, they don't they still feel as indulgent, although they don't feel weighty at all. You could yeah. I breeze through these last few pages like they were nothing. Yeah. And it's just because, like you're saying, they give you exactly the right words in exactly the right proportion to propel you along on your dark journey. It really is a thing to read. Yeah, um, they, they don't they don't waste a lot of space when they don't need to. Do you know what I mean? Like like I'll just give you I'll give you a glimpse of what I'm talking about. Where do the domains start in the PDF here? Uh, so let's just go to a random page. Let's just go to Nova Vasa, page seventy eight. I'm not a particularly big fan of Nova Vasa, but but you can <laughs> see that the uh, the entry is really small. Do you know what I mean it's not it's not mm -hmm. like these a lot of books now have much bigger more extensive entries. And it's oh, also yeah. this, broken this down into page uh, of really well-defined paragraphs. Yes. It doesn't look like there's a lot there. There's a lot of empty space there. So one thing that means is this is a very bare bones description. You're not getting a lot beyond this is how big this town is. This is sort of the general gist of what the land is like. This is who is in charge. This is the vibe. This is what encounters tend to be like. This is what the people are like. The people are dealt with in a single paragraph. You have to elaborate on the bare bones in your own campaign. Do you know what I mean? That that was the message to me back in the day was that, you know, obviously you you have to go beyond what's on this page, um, which is a good thing, because that means the GM gets to fill in the blank spaces with his imagination. You know what I mean? That's 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 why this works, I think, because it's it's enough, but it's not like you don't. And, and again, I think this does become a problem as the line goes on. But at least at this point. You're not dealing with this like massive setting canon. Do you know what I mean? It's not. It's not that kind of a setting initially. Um, it does eventually become like that, like a lot of settings do. But the thing I like about this book is how there there isn't really a whole lot of canon that's like dragging things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, even the Markovia entry isn't any bigger. They, these are all extremely yeah. brief. And uh, the thing about second edition. Uh, is that it inherited a lot of really good stuff from the earlier editions of D&D. Like, it's got little encounter tables, a little description of the lands, a little description of, like, the domain lord and the politics and the structure, a little description about who lives there and their attitudes, and that's it. That's it. It's out. It's done. It's all you need. That gives you the, the bare essentials of building the place for yourself. Yeah. And that, like, you can see how that came from those slightly more uh, dry and slightly more technical entries in the early editions of D&D. Yes. Like, this is much more about just kind of just telling you what's there instead of giving you a statistical breakdown. But the thing that I find impressive about that, again, is that that is exactly right tonally and thematically and 
uh, mechanically about how you should approach that material. We don't know exactly how many Watchmen are in Barovia, but we do know that among the militia, there are first-level fighters who are with ringmail and swords. That's all the info you actually need, because, of course, that's who you're going to encounter whenever you go up to one of the Barovian Watchmen. And what you'll see is, if you look at, like, the Gartacus entry, which is, that's one of my favorite domains. That's, like, the Howling domain. Number one, it's a, <laughs> it's a larger entry than a lot of the other ones get, but it's still fairly concise. And if you go and you look at Feast of Goblins, that's sort of a demonstration of how these domains can expand when you actually take this bare-bones material and then try to elaborate on it. And so I always looked at all of the modules for Ravenloft as examples of how to expand the domains into more extensive material for a campaign. Um, you know, that, you know, and I, th I think they did a good job with that in some cases more than others, you know, Feast of Goblins <laughs> is one of the, one of the top ones. I think castles forlorn is a very good one. Um, castles forlorn is, is, is ambitious and amazing in a lot of ways. It's a very interesting. Ooh, we'll check that out yeah. next. Um, it, it's it, well, what's weird about it is, you definitely need to get the physical version because I I I used to have the box set. Unfortunately, I lost the Castles Forlorn box set in a move, but I got the PDF and the PDF because it's got a bunch of booklets in the original box set. The PDF ends up feeling very different. Do you know what I mean? Because hmm. you're not dealing with these individual booklets, and having the individual booklets really made a big difference. It's um, hmm. interesting. So, but yeah, well, they so, probably compiled them all in one big like because this is this was a box set. Now it's just a big oh, uh, it's, it's a big paperback. Okay, yeah, yeah I, so I, they probably compile it that way too. Okay, even still, like having because I'm willing to bet that there's a different graphical design to the different books, and so it still feel different having them physically there. I think. Yeah, Feast of Goblins looks a little bit. I'm not Feast of Goblins. Uh, Castles Forlorn looks a little bit different for sure. Um, Feast of Goblins is more in tune with this original presentation, I think. Um, you know, I, I would say the books, if, if, if somebody wants to know what Ravenloft was about, this, the black box set, Feast of Goblins, and one of the Von Richten books should be enough to get you going. That could be the Guide to Vampires, the Guide to Lycanthropes, the Guide to the Created, the Guide to, to Ghosts. Those are all pretty good uh, guides to, to monsters in the, in the setting. Those three materials will be enough to kind of give you an idea of how to run things, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, so I don't know, we, we should probably head out soon, but what's your, uh, what's your, <laughs> what's your overall take here on this? Uh, overall take so far, I'm really impressed that new types of GMing and game structure styles are being explored here. And they were explored in a way that allowed you to integrate them into the classic ways that you would run a campaign seamlessly. That was really neat. Um, and the fact that the game thought enough not only to introduce those techniques to you, but to introduce them in a way that you could explain them with the universe's logic to your players was really fascinating. I think that the the grounding in gothic horror and romantic literature is impressive. I think that the the brief but effective Appendix E has got some brilliant writing on it. Um, so I, I think that that's a really good Appendix E as far as like getting you into the mood of what you're supposed to be doing. I really like the powers check, and I really like the way portals work. We didn't mention that a whole lot. Portals are a big thing in this. Portals are because this are. is the weekend in hell iteration of Ravenloft. <laughs> where yes, the, and it, it makes sure to tell you that you can tease uh, players with portals that don't open 
Oh, like they open for just like a little eye blink at the start yeah. of the adventure, and then you've got to do the whole adventure to open it again. I the love way, that. This is how I always viewed Ravenloft. Do you remember those old TV shows? Like, I guess a good example of the kind of TV show I'm thinking about is is that's more recent would be Farscape. But like, I don't know. Do you know? Are you familiar with Farscape or no? Yeah, yeah, I've seen Farscape. So, but uh, you know, and there were a lot of shows like that in the '70s and in the '80s where you have a character who gets thrown into a lost world of some kind and the whole purpose of the show is them trying to get home but if they ever get home the show is over right like you yes. don't have a show anymore so that's kind of how i would tend to approach ravenloft you know is you know i i just think that works best as the framing of ravenloft i've i've never i've never been fond of running ravenloft with player characters as natives to the demi plane it just to me it just doesn't work the same yeah um, i i kind of feel the same way like and i do that with you and suin too which is a much more modern product but you and suin works best when no one knows what the hell is going on yeah. and they get to encounter the cultures and the weirdness is fresh you know uh that's the best you and soon and i think that the best ravenloft is when you're outside of ravenloft and you stagger through the mists and there's a freaking castle in the distance and you hear the forlorn bang of wolves and you're yeah. like okay the rules have changed yeah yeah and and again that's something obviously you can only kind of have that experience once i i don't i don't mind running a campaign with players who have now familiar with ravenloft i just feel like that same setup is the best conceit for a campaign framework of you guys are from another world and you're trying to get back do you know what i mean that's sort of the the... Oh yeah, especially when Ravenloft can kind of attack you with the mist more or less whenever it wants. Yeah, it, it means that you as a GM have a permission from the game line itself, as close to the word of God as you can get, to have the spooky, different rules having adventures yeah. whenever you want, whenever you're in the mood. And the players that got to put up with that and escape Ravenloft, yeah. and they can still have a good time doing it. They can get a little cursed, and they can they can like you can be sort of a Ravenloft tourist with this. And uh, I kind of love that. Yeah. It's kind of monster of the week in a lot of ways. Yes. Right? It's got a very monster of the week vibe. And it also like, that's a different way of running games. Like sometimes you just want to run a game where it's like, I thought of this cool adventure site. I thought of this cool plot. I thought of this cool monster and here it is. And this game is totally fine with it. Like yeah. the supplement is like, yeah, no, you go to the mist and then you come out of the mist and now it's a new thing. So if you're the kind of like ADHD game master, like I very much am, uh, then having your techniques justified through that codification is it's kind of nice, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's a really it's wonderfully written, and I think it deserves to be read. I think that's maybe the thing that struck me the very most about this. Um, the writing itself is good, yeah. and it's evocative, and it's it kind of brings you into the world, and it teaches you in this really clever, fun way without you really knowing you're being taught stuff. And uh, I I love it. Actually, uh, we only did three chapters this time, but it was 20 pages total. I say we do another 20 pages, and we, we go all the way uh, through uh, – go all the way up to Spells in Ravenloft for next time, all the way up to Chapter 9. Uh, we'll stop at Chapter 9, but like that's uh, that'll get us Horror Checks, which is Chapter 4. So wait, wait, what page uh, are we going to? Oh, uh, page – we're going to stop at page 50. Oh, so, okay. Oh, no. So what page are we on right now? Oh, no, I'm sorry. So, stop at page 42. Uh, okay, we're on page so... 20. We're, we're on page 20 now. Okay. Oh, so, so we're going to read the 20 pages. Okay. So we're going to, we're not going to read the spell chapter. We're going to get to the spell chapter. Going to get to the spell chapter, but not read I get... it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So telling the future, the, uh, yeah, yeah. okay. All that. All right. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that's, that's a pretty, pretty good, 
yeah, it's gypsies, good... curses, uh, telling the future, werebeasts and vampires. Werebeasts and, and vampires is a Pure very Horror important Jets. chapter. That's a very important chapter. It looks chapter. important. It's yeah. got some really sexy art in it, too. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah the Jonathan Harker picture with the uh, the vampire women and the... Uh, um, there's a lot of that Ravenloft. Like I said, it's a set. It, it's not. It's not like sleazy or R-rated, but they don't. They're not no, afraid it, to have dashes of that in the artwork, which I think. Yeah, it, it's it's sensual without being scummy, and I think yeah. that's important. Especially like looking at that particular piece, uh, I'm struck by the character in the back the very most, where her, yeah. her face is mostly in shadow, and she's got this really threatening, like eerie body language, like. What a cool piece. I don't know if I've ever seen a piece of art that looks quite like that That's before. all Stephen Fabian. Fabian is... He is the one that brings Ravenloft to life, I think, in terms of the artwork. Um, it, it really works well. So we're at the hour mark, though, so I'll end it here. All right, right. And then that's we'll, probably uh, enough Ravenloft for now. Yeah, and then we'll, we'll be back next time, and we'll, we'll just kind of work our way through the rest of the book.